Matthew 26, and we are beginning in verse number 57 this morning. It's a rather discouraging section when we look at it at first glance, but I promise you that there is some good news in it, especially when you know the rest of the story. This morning, we're just going to focus our attention on verses 57 through 68, what is the, the, the trial of Christ uh, before Caiaphas and the council. In the larger narrative, Jesus stood trial before a few different men, places of authority. Matthew doesn't tell us all of it at once, or all, even all of it, but we have here the time that he stands before Caiaphas. Let's read God's Word and then hear what He has for us. Hear now the words of the living God. Then those who had seized Jesus led Him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following Him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And Going inside, He sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? He answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face, struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Finally, the Jews have captured Jesus. For some time now, they've been looking for an excuse, and Judas gave them their chance found Jesus in the garden, seized him, and brought him to the high priest Caiaphas. Now in the custody of the Jewish authorities, Jesus stands before the high priest and the council. This council is known as the Sanhedrin. You probably have heard that word before. It's not used here in our text, but that's what this council is. The Sanhedrin council is the the governing council of Israel. It's essentially the supreme court of the land. It is the highest court there is in Israel. It is made up of priests and scribes and elders in Israel. Uh, The Sanhedrin ran the internal government under the authority of Rome. Rome allowed the Sanhedrin to uh, act as uh, as the governing authorities um, of 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 the land of Israel. It's important as we're walking through this text to recognize just who it is that, is, that, that Jesus is standing before. 
as a member of the Sanhedrin, as a member of the council, or as the high priest himself, these are supposed to be upstanding members of society. Respected men who wield great power and have great influence. Yet, as we've seen and we will consider further, they betray the dignity and the trust of their office. The Supreme Court is not looking for justice. They're bent on getting a conviction, regardless of Jesus' guilt or innocence. And we know the story. We know Jesus' past. But put yourself here where one might try to be an objective justice. The council isn't seeking justice. All they want to do is silence the teacher from Nazareth once and for all, and by any means necessary. And in these verses, we read just how far they were willing to go to do that, to accomplish this purpose. Their plan that they had been uh, putting together for quite some time is finally taking shape, and their great opportunity stands before them. They are not going to miss this opportunity. Whatever it takes... Jesus will be found guilty tonight, and he will be put to death. Now this morning, I want to I highlight the, the various ways that the council sought to do this, that they tried to convict Jesus. I want you to see how they mistreated him, how they abused him, when they finally handed down their guilty verdict. I want you to see the injustice and the horror when an innocent man gets railroaded and humiliated. But above all of that, and more particularly what we need to see this morning, is that through all of this, God was still in charge. He was still in control. Though they sought to destroy Jesus, they only succeeded in accomplishing what was the Father's will all along. They humiliated Jesus. But in doing so, they paved the way for His exaltation as the Messiah King. In other words, Christ's exaltation as the King of kings and Lord of lords came through His humiliation as the suffering servant in Matthew 26. We are reminded as we think about this, not only then but now today, that no matter how bad things get or Maybe I should say, no matter how bad things look, God is always in control. He's always in charge. But to get rid of Jesus, that's what they're they're after this morning. How will they seek to get rid of Jesus? Look in verse 59, the first way to get rid of Jesus, they resort to lies. Verse 59 tells us that they were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Not the truth. What court system doesn't seek, at least in name, they're seeking the truth? No, they just want a conviction. They've already determined He's guilty. They just need to find something to fill in that blank. They couldn't let the truth get in their way. Jesus has to die. Verse 60 tells us that many false witnesses come forward. Now, witness is, by definition, someone who has seen or heard something. So think about this. What do these people have to say? 
what are they going to come forward and say about Jesus? And Matthew and the rest of the, the, the Gospel writers don't really tell us much about what these people said, but we know that they were false witnesses. But I wonder what, they, what actually they did say. I mean, what could they say? What evidence was there that Jesus had done something wrong? What teaching was punishable by death? What miracle had Jesus performed that He deserved to die for? I wondered this week as I considered this, did any of these men perchance eat of the bread and the fish Jesus fed the 5,000? Or the 4,000? Had any of them ever seen Barnabas, I'm sorry, not Bartimaeus, receive his sight? Had any of them met one of the many lepers that Jesus had Healed completely. I wonder if any of them had ever heard the amazing story of Lazarus. I'm pretty sure some of them did because they tried to kill Lazarus too. The truth is, it wouldn't matter what they knew about Jesus' ministry. Because though Jesus was innocent of any crime and had only went about doing good, many were willing to lie about Him. But the council, as it would be, couldn't find anything on Jesus. There was no way to build a case on lies. That doesn't mean that they were going to let that stop them. They were determined. And so the second way that they seek to get rid of Jesus is in verse 61. To get rid of Jesus, they distorted His words. In verse 61, two men finally come forward and they have a promising accusation. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, according to Jewish law, for any accusation to stand, there must be at least two witnesses. And this is why it is, it is pertinent that two step forward with the same story. In Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, uh, the law said that on, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a char- charge be established. So, when these two men come forward with this accusation and their stories agree, now they have something to go on. It was all just legalities at this point. But it's interesting to see how the priests followed the law in Deuteronomy 19 here, but they didn't follow the rest of what Deuteronomy 19 says. You can peek at it later. I just want to read it the next few verses to you because right after verse 15, which says at the mouth of two or three witnesses, it says, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the high priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the false witness is a false witness, if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. It goes on to say, the rest shall hear in fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. So they were willing to do the two or three witnesses part, but did they inquire diligently? The law specifically instructs them how to determine if they're telling the truth or not. But these guys need a quick conviction. They don't have time to inquire diligently. Never mind that the witnesses have actually distorted what Jesus really said. Jesus never said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Jesus did say something similar though. 
If you peek over in John chapter 2, in verse 19, you'll find Jesus said almost this exact sentence except one big difference. In John 2.19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus did speak about the destruction of the temple. Jesus did speak about rebuilding the temple in three days. In John 2, when Jesus said this, the people that heard Him didn't even believe Him. Because the temple had had taken a half a century to build, and there's no way that one man could destroy it, let alone rebuild it, in three days. So the people that heard it at the first thought it was nonsense, even though then Jesus was talking not about a building, but about His body. Because later on He said uh, that that's exactly what He was talking about. He was talking about the, the temple of His body that would be destroyed, and three days later, it would be risen from the dead. Jesus never said that He was going to destroy the temple. The, the emphasis was on them. It was, an, it was an imperative. It was a command. You destroy this temple, which is what they would do. And in three days I will raise it up. This is about as far as the diligent inquiry of the priests went. Verse 62, back in Matthew, they just basically say, well, what do you have to say for yourself? Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Speak up. What do you want to say about this? Defend yourself. But Jesus remains silent. One might say, like a sheep before his shears, he is silent. Jesus will not defend himself. Because, as we saw in the earlier section, it is the Father's will that he be sentenced to die. He wouldn't defend himself in the garden. He wouldn't use the swords available to him. He wouldn't use the angelic hosts that were available to him. If he wouldn't defend himself in the garden... He will not defend himself before Caiaphas. And finally, Caiaphas, I I can imagine the frustration building because he knows that he really has nothing to go on and time is running out, as it were, and he needs to hurry and finish this. And so he just basically says, confess. Tell us. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's he's putting Jesus under oath here. That's what it means to adjure someone. I, I'm putting you under oath here. Swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Are you the Christ or not? And notice there in, in that verse that it connects the Christ, the Messiah, with the Son of God. So the high priest recognizes that there's something divine here about the Messiah. There's something connected, woven it throughout the whole Scriptures with the Messiah and with the Son of God. And finally, Jesus speaks. Don't don't think that Jesus never spoke a word throughout His whole trial because He does speak. He just doesn't speak to defend Himself. But He will speak to prove His identity. To prove and speak the truth about who He is. Verse 64, there's that phrase again, you've said so. Kind of a a mysterious phrase. It's, It's not straight out and coming, yes. It's not saying no by any means. It's the same way that He answered when Judas asked Him at the Last Supper, is it I? Judas knew the answer and Jesus said, you said so. And Jesus says it here now. It may be purposefully ambiguous. Possibly because Jesus had a very different understanding of what the Messiah was than the priests and the, and the Sanhedrin council. They thought they knew what it was all about. They were the educated ones, of course. But Jesus had a far better understanding of what the Messiah was really all about. Uh, Don Carson is helpful. And he explains that Jesus speaks in this way, not because Caiaphas has spoken the truth, well, because Caiaphas' understanding of Messiah and Son of God is fundamentally inadequate. Caiaphas doesn't get the bigger picture. And so possibly Jesus was allowing him to basically 
go off of his own testimony because he would have, he would have, it would have blown his mind to understand how much greater the definition of Messiah was. Because quite literally, the, defini- the, the understanding of Jesus and Caiaphas are on very different levels. Jesus' understanding is far different, far greater than any other priest's. And they will not understand it. And when they do finally get some bit of the truth, watch, and they will reject it. But Jesus is not done speaking. Verse 64 continues, But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Does that sound familiar? Does anything from a few months ago sound uh, familiar to there? Because Jesus has already spoken like this. Jesus has already brought these Terms up. I have a hand raised in the back, but I won't take Emma. Thank you. Uh, the, the, uh, she was ready to answer the question. She's listening, folks. Uh, there is uh, th- there is some similar language going on because back in Matthew twenty four verse thirty, Jesus uses the same uh, imagery. There in, ver- in in that section of Matthew twenty four, this is the Olivet discourse. Jesus said that immediately after tri- after the tribulation, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, the priests weren't at the Olivet Discourse, likely. So this isn't the second time that they've heard it, but it's the second time that we've read it because we're reading Matthew's uh, account of it. And in Matthew 24, Jesus was referring to an earlier passage from way back in Daniel chapter 7. He's using the same imagery from Daniel 7 to teach on the Olivet Discourse, and, to, to, and he uses the same imagery now for the uh, explanation to the high priest. I'm going to read Daniel 7 and verse 13 and, and try to catch the similar language. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Some very key terms in all three of these places. We have clouds. We have a son of man. We have, uh, we have them coming with clouds. So catch everything that Jesus is saying in, to these priests. Because it may take a little bit for 21st century Western ears to, to hear it all and make sense of it all, but for these guys, they got it immediately. Jesus is saying, if you look back there at verse number 64, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. From now on, indicating that there is a new period of time being marked. Some of the translations use the word hereafter. He's not talking about some distant time in the future, but he's saying from this point now, you will see something different. No longer will you see me as as I stand before you today, the suffering man, but you will see me as the risen and exalted king of the universe. Jesus is identifying himself here as the Messiah in clear Old Testament language. Now, it may not seem clear to us who are not as familiar with the Old Testament as these men were, but that's what Jesus is saying. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Not only that, I am the figure from Daniel 7 who comes to the Ancient of Days, who comes to God the Father and is presented with a kingdom that is indestructible and eternal. Now let all of that sink in for a moment. That is a very bold statement for a man 
in Jesus' position to make. His life hangs in the balance. His life literally depends on the verdict from the council. The council believes they're the ones in charge, but Jesus is saying, actually, I am. They might have the power to condemn Him, but He is saying from now on, He will receive all the power and an eternal kingdom and dominion and honor and glory. And it may not look like it right now, but from hereafter, it will be so. Powerful words from a man in Jesus' position. From now on, fellows, you won't see me as I stand before you today, but as the risen, eternal, sovereign Lord, King, and Judge. The roles will be reversed. He will sit in judgment of them and everybody else. Now, as I said, this might take a minute for us to really let that soak in. But these guys get it right away. Now, they no longer have to resort to lies. They no longer have to resort to distorting Jesus' words. Now, they simply get rid of Jesus by rejecting His words and through unbelief. Because in verse 65, they get it immediately what Jesus meant. They didn't like it. They didn't agree with it. But they understood what Jesus was saying. And they said, this is the reason that He must die. They knew He was identifying as the Messiah. They knew that He was saying that He's the kingly Son of David and the sovereign Son of God. But this version of Messiah that Jesus is presenting doesn't fit their narrative. This, this kind of Jesus can't be Messiah. This is not how it's supposed to work. He doesn't look the part. He doesn't act the part. It's time to end this. It's time to finish with Him. And Jesus has just given them all that they need. Because notice what they say. Caiaphas tears his robes and shouts, He has uttered blasphemy. Blasphemy is the sin of arrogantly disrespecting God. It's the opposite of blessing God. It's to insult God. To make little of God and His glory. That's what it means to blaspheme. to make little of God. And under Jewish law, the penalty for blasphemy is death. Leviticus 24.16 clearly says that whoever blasphemes the name of, the, of God, of Yahweh, is to be put to death. And so they see this as their opportunity. Caiaphas shouts, it's blasphemy. And he says, well, what further witnesses do we need? You now heard his blasphemy. So what is your judgment? They answer, he deserves death. But here's something to consider. What if Jesus isn't blaspheming? What if Jesus is telling the truth? If Jesus is blaspheming, he deserves to die unless he truly is who he says he is. And if he is the Son of God, he's not blaspheming. He's declaring truth. But that doesn't matter, does it? Because we're not after the truth here at this council. These men are filled with unbelief and wickedness. And so they reject Jesus' words. In Luke's account of this, uh, they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus said, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Jesus was right. They didn't believe Him. 
They rejected his words. Mark says that they blindfolded him. Instead of showering him with praise and honor, they insult him and spit on him. Instead of bowing before their king, they punch him and slap him. They are the ones who blaspheme and mock by saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. There's such, such sarcasm and vitriol in their, in their acute accusation here. Who is it that struck you? Blindfolded and spitting and hitting and then saying, tell us then if you're the Christ, who is it that just hit you? They're mocking. They're blaspheming. And these are the men who are supposed to represent the best in Israel. They're the ones who should have modeled to all of Israel what piety and discipline and dignity looks like. Instead, they humiliate and abuse a fellow man, but not just a man, the Son of God. The amazing thing about all of this as I'm reading this, it just keeps coming to the forefront, is that while they're humiliating Jesus, they are actually accomplishing God's purpose. They're doing exactly as God planned. Because the humiliation of Christ led to his exaltation. God designed that his son would be exalted to the highest place by first being humiliated and humbled to the lowest place. So do you see what's happening here? Caiaphas thinks he's in charge. The council thinks they're in the position of power. Just a few verses, Pilate will ask Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Everybody thinks they're in charge. Jesus tells Pilate, you wouldn't have authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. You only have what God has given you. The truth is that God is in control from beginning to end. And everything, even this part, was going exactly the way God had planned it. The high priests, religious leaders did whatever they could to get rid of Jesus. They, they resorted to lies, to distortion of Jesus' words, flat out rejecting his words, whatever it took. But Jesus' words in verse 64 declare that God was in control the entire time, every step of the way. It's a lot the same today. People continue today to lie, twist God's word, discredit him and try to remove God's word and Jesus himself from our society and from our culture. Without any evidence, they will testify that Jesus taught against the law of Moses. He contradicted the Old Testament scriptures or that Jesus lived the secret life in violation of the Holy Scriptures or they'll perpetuate a lie that Jesus is just some mythological fantasy of ancient folklore. Others will distort and twist what Jesus actually did say. They'll try to use the Scriptures to discredit Him and belittle anyone that is foolish enough to believe it. All of this simply to discredit Jesus in the public square. 
There's, there are some people out there who are fine to have a, a very watered-down version of Jesus, but not the Christ that is presented to us in Scripture. But despite the raging and the plotting of the nations, Jesus sits eternally enthroned in heaven. And He's not going anywhere. The nations can rage and try to remove Him. He's there for good. And He now is ruling in the midst of His enemies while they are all being subjected to Him. The the New Testament is pregnant with uh, language and description of Jesus sitting at the throne. Let me, you can jot down these references. You'll probably recognize some of them on your own. Hebrews, uh, for instance, has three or four of them on, on its own. But Hebrews 1.3 says that after making purification for sins, after Jesus died and was re- and resurrected, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits at the throne of God. Hebrews 8 verse 1 says that He's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 13 says that he sits there waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is language that is pulled from the psalm, Psalm 110. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25, Paul says that Jesus must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. So while the world around us may look bad and the landscape may look bleak, we need to remember Who's still in charge? Who is sitting on the throne? Christian, take comfort in the fact that God is still in control of everything that is going on. Jesus is presently ruling and reigning in the midst of His enemies. That truth brings comfort to us who believe it when life is chaotic. He's out of control. Because our God is always in control. Have you had a tough week? Have you given in to temptation and to fear? Have you given in to doubts? You feel like you have no handle on the situation at home or at work or the world at large, but God does. And it's comfort. Even through the humiliation of His own Son, God was ordering events according to His eternal purpose. That means He can handle your situation too. He can handle mine. He can accomplish His purpose for us. He can bring good from bad. He can bring order from chaos. This truth is a sober warning to all who are Christ's enemies as well. It tells you you will not succeed. You will not win. They may deny the rule of Christ. They may deny that Jesus reigns. They may even deny that Jesus exists. That doesn't change the truth, does it? He remains highly exalted, seated at the throne of God. And no matter how bleak it seems down here, God always has things under control from up there. He doesn't just rule heaven. He has it all under control down here too. The plan of God is undeniable. It is unstoppable. He is unfazed and undisturbed by whatever man does down here. There is not one thing that man can do to stop what God has already determined is going to happen. Not one thing that's going to happen on the political scene is going to make God go, oh, I didn't think about that one. 
I've got to come back and try that one again. Or I keep trying. I, want, I keep wanting to come back and fix it all, but, but people keep getting in my way. It's never happened. It's never going to happen. It's never been out of God's control. In fact, as we study the Scriptures, this one particularly and all throughout, we find that God accomplishes His plan through man's schemes. While man thinks he's in full rebellion, he is, and God is still making it happen through it. We didn't really look at it, but I wonder if you maybe ever feel like Peter. He just gets this brief little mention at the very beginning of the, of the, of the story there, that Peter, he snuck in, followed from afar. He's just sitting there, he's looking on, he's waiting to see how it ends. Because in Peter's mind, this is it nothing else to happen. He just wants to watch and see how it ends. Maybe things seem hopeless. Maybe things feel impossible to imagine ever turning around, ever getting right again. It's just gone that far. It's never going to get any worse. And it's destined to fail. And take heart. Because it's never one time been outside of God's control. He is presently ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, accomplishing the eternal plan of God. Now, at this point in the narrative, Jesus is standing before the high priest. He is being judged by wicked men. He is being rejected. He is being lied about. He is abused and disrespected, blasphemed and innocently convicted to die. But all this is about to change. From now on, Jesus will be exalted to the highest place. He will sit down as the king. He will sit down as the high priest. He will sit down as the judge. Even at life's bleakest moments, we are encouraged to remember that the plan of God marches on. And we look to him who once stood condemned before Caiaphas, but now sits at the Father's right hand, ruling in the midst of his enemies until they are all put under his feet. Let's pray. Father, we, we each come with uh, different thoughts and experiences from the past week. For many of us, it was just a regular week, and for some of us, it, there was some struggles, there were challenges, some may be public, some a little bit more private. There's been plenty of opportunity to be discouraged by what we see on the news, what we see all around us, what we experience in our own lives. But it is encouraging to read that no matter what was going on, it was always by your plan. So that when things happen today, they happened this week, or as they will happen this coming week. We can be assured and rest assured that you have it under control, that none of these things are happening outside of your plan. None of these things are happening contrary to what you are going to do. We can trust you. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe what you have said. Give us rest and hope in your power, 
in your plan and in your will. May those who have yet to bow the knee hear the words of our Lord. May they believe them and repent, turn to Christ and find in Him a Savior, forgiveness of their sins, and like us, rest for our weary souls. It's through him that we pray. Amen.